Genesis, then Exodus chapter 32. We're going to be looking at blot me out of your book. What does that mean? You may have seen that we did a little uh, invitation to ask some questions about the, the question of blotting out of the book and what is the book and the significance of that. So we're going to jump into that tonight. Exodus 32. We will finish the chapter. Why don't we uh, do this? Let's locate it together and then stand up for the reading of these few verses. Exodus 32, picking it up at verse 30. On the next day, Moses said to the people, you yourselves have committed a great sin, and now I'm going up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Exodus 32, 31. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has committed a great sin and they have made a God of gold for themselves. But now, if you will forgive their sin, and if not, please blot me out from your book which you have written. The Lord said to Moses, Whoever sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. But go now, lead the people where I told you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I punish, I will punish them for their sin. Then the Lord smote the people because of what they had di- did, because of what they did with the calf which Aaron had made. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Father, thank you so much for this small but powerful section as we conclude Exodus 32 and as we look at Moses' great intercession for the people and his great offer to you, Lord, and There is really a casting of a shadow of the ultimate mediator in the life of Moses, and we can see that as we read these few verses. And tonight, we want to have a heart like you, Lord. We want to be more like Jesus, conformed into the image of our great God and Savior. And and Lord, we can can walk like him. We can be uh, walking in the footsteps of our Messiah, We are to walk, in fact, in the same manner as he walked, and that's a a lofty calling. And I I pray tonight that to the degree that we can achieve that, this side of heaven, you would help us, Lord, in that endeavor. And I think in, in looking at Moses, we can see a beautiful picture of what it means to be a person after God's own heart, to walk in humility, to walk in sacrificial love, to have the love of God permeate our being. We struggle with it, Lord. We confess it. Sometimes we see idols that uh, we can easily gravitate to in our own lives. We can easily be at the foot of that mountain, joining in with the others. And I, I pray that tonight you'd help us to be more like Moses, spending time in your glory, having your heart, your eyes, uh, your loving kindness, which is better than life. So we pray that you do a mighty work in our hearts. We pray over our country tonight. We need a great awakening, Father. We need a revival. And I pray that indeed it would start with your church and start right here in our hearts. In Jesus' name, if you agree, would you say amen? So it came about Exodus 32, 30, on the next day. There's always the day after sin. And uh, the previous day had been the confrontation of Moses coming down the mountain with the tables of the law And he smashed them because the people had broken the law. And something that Moses did is he approached his brother and he confronted Aaron. And he basically said to him, what 
is happening, bro? <laughs> what did these people do to you that you have done this thing? And you remember the lame excuse that Aaron made, you know, I took the gold and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. And he was telling the truth for a while. And then he kind of, you know, he came up with a whopper and, and we've all probably been there before. And you know, if you've read the story or you've been with us, that Moses took the calf and burned the calf and threw the, the burnt gold, if you will, into the water, and he made the people drink it. And I couldn't help but think of liquid gold. So if any of you have ever, did you, did you ever dust with liquid gold? Is liquid gold really a thing? Is that the name of a product? Never mind. Anyway, they tasted it, and it was a bitter taste, and when Shane told that story that I washed his mouth out with soap at some point in his childhood, I don't, I don't remember that. I honestly don't remember that. It probably did happen. I'm not questioning his sincerity, but anyway. But I will say this, that there is always an aftertaste the next day after sin. You can, you can be promised that you're going to have a great time and you're just going to go with the flow and you're going to dance around the golden calf or whatever. Or maybe you get swept up in a moment, which is really easy for any of us. You know, a peer pressure is strong. Yeah, where is Moses? Where did he go? And, and all of a sudden to join in with the, the ways of Egypt, which they weren't that far removed from it, right? And so they, many people, maybe there were instigators and then others who joined in, but it, it was the day after. And so the day after sin is, is a reality. And sometimes there is a bitter aftertaste and you can't forget that. And, and a lot of the, the carrots that dangle before us, you know, in, in the promise of excitement or uh, this or that, as it, as it relates to sin, you will very rarely hear about the aftertaste. But there is always an aftertaste. There's always a price to be paid when you go toward the idol. So it is the next day after that confrontation, after 3,000 people paid with their lives, that's Exodus 32, 28, just a side note, that the law kills, but the spirit gives life. And 3,000 people died at the giving of the law, and 3,000 people were saved when the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost. 3,000 were added to the church. If you want the reference, it's Acts 2.41. And by the way, scholars believe, many scholars believe that the day of Pentecost fell on the exact day that the law was given. And so there is a definite parallel. 3,000 die at the giving of the law, 3,000 are saved at the giving of the Spirit. That's a very interesting contrast. And we do know that under the Old Covenant, there was severe uh, penalties for idolatry. In fact, the penalty was death. So all the people who participated in this sin deserved to die. But 3,000 people paid with their lives, sadly, and it says in verse 30, on the next day, Moses said to the people, you yourselves have committed a great sin. And now I'm going up to the Lord. And I have shared with you that Moses was going up and down, up to the Lord, back down to the people. And Moses then says, perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. You're going to see the word sin mentioned at least six times in these few verses. 
And notice that Moses confronts the people with, they've committed a great sin. Now, sin is a reality, and sin literally means to miss the mark. So we are not perfect. All of us have sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. We're all imperfect. If you think about, you know, trying to hit a bullseye with a dart, you might hit it several times, but you're going to miss. And that, that just simply means that you're imperfect, that you're a fallen human being, and that's why we sin. But there's other forms of sin, and one form of sin is a transgression. And a transgression means you know the line and you cross it despite knowing. And Israel did know the line here, and they still crossed the line, and they had their reasons why. We don't know what happened to Moses, etc. And so... He calls their sin a great sin. Just This is a side note. There are levels of sin. Sometimes you will hear people say, sin is sin. In one sense, that's true. In another sense, that's not true. Jesus said, he who delivered me over to you, Pilate, has the greater sin. What does that mean? It means that there are sin, some sins that are greater than other sins. For example, when you sin with foreknowledge, when you know the right thing to do and don't do it, well, then there's, there's a, even more of a, a weight to that, you could say. There are also levels of sin in, in, in relation to how serious they are and what kind of consequences they have. You can hate someone in your heart, which in, on one level is the same as committing murder, but on another level, it's not the same as committing murder. Because you could repent of that in your heart and get things right. But if you take someone's life, there's a different set of consequences. Amen? So there are sins that are lesser and sins that are greater. And here, their sin is called a great sin. And Moses says, and now I'm going up to the Lord. That's Yahweh. Perhaps, he doesn't know for sure, perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. The word sin, if you're interested, is uh, kata, it's C-H-A-T-A. Sometimes it has an extra A-H on the end. And in the Hebrew picture language, this word means to build a wall brick by brick around yourself until finally you close yourself in, you become a prisoner to your sin. And here's the other nuance of this. And you wall yourself off to God and others. When you continue to sin, you build your own prison brick by brick and you end up walling yourself off to God because sin, what? Separates us from God and from others. And so that's something that you have to consider. Each time you consider, should I do this? Should I not do it? What is the cost? It's another brick in the wall, as it were, as Pink Floyd sung about some years ago. That's a different story. But this is what the word sin represents. It's a great sin. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. And so Moses is going to head back up to God with the hope that he can make atonement. How will he make atonement? It says, perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Moses had heard about the people's sin up on the mountain, but now he had seen it in all its ugliness. You know, it's one thing to hear about something. It's another thing to see it for yourself, right? And Moses had been up in the glory of God and the holiness and the power of God. And now he goes down to see what they've tried to replace God with. 
Talk about a downer. Talk about a major step down from the glory of God up on Mount Sinai to this golden monstrosity. And that's all man can produce is a weak substitute that God will say over and over again in the Bible that's impotent to save. It can't do anything. Why would you construct something and then worship it? What will you compare to me? Well, Moses has been up on the mountain. And when you spend time with God, sin looks a little bit uglier, doesn't it? It looks a little bit more foul, a little bit more disastrous. And so Moses says, perhaps I can go up and make atonement. The question is, can he? Maybe a second question is, how can he? James Montgomery Boyce has gone home to be with the Lord, says he imagines that the prophet spends the night struggling to figure out how to make atonement. The night passed, says Boyce, and the morning came when Moses was to reascend the mountain. He had been thinking sometime during the night a way that might possibly divert the wrath of God against the people had come to him. He remembered the sacrifices of the Hebrew patriarchs and the newly instituted sacrifice of the Passover. Certainly God had shown by such sacrifices that he was prepared to accept an innocent substitute in the place of the just death of a sinner. His wrath could sometimes fall on that substitute. We learned that in the tabernacle as well. Perhaps God would accept, dot, dot, dot. When morning came, Moses ascended the mountain. With great determination, reaching the top, he began to speak to God. What did he know about God? He knew the Lord was gracious and merciful, full of compassion, a God of loving kindness, which the Lord will declare his name to Moses in Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord, full of compassion, full of loving kindness and mercy. That's who he had been spending time with. So there was hope, as holy as God is, that perhaps he will forgive. To be sure, God is gracious, merciful, full of loving kindness and forgiveness. But it cannot be presumed as if it is God's duty that he is duty-bound to remove our sins anytime and anywhere we ask him. German writer Heinrich Heine said on his deathbed, get this, while conversing with a priest, God will forgive me, that's his job, close quote. God will forgive me, that's his job. Uh, No, my friend, it is not his job to forgive you. It's his grace that forgives you. But he doesn't owe you and he doesn't owe me anything. He is not duty bound to forgive. The word for atonement, perhaps I can make atonement, is a key idea tonight. And if you're interested, it is the word kafar. We have a Hebrew uh, feast that is coming up on the calendar And it is called the uh, Feast of Yom Kippur. And this is the idea of uh, of the covering of sin or the word kafar. Uh, This is the idea of atonement. The word for atonement first comes up if you're taking notes in Exodus 29, 33, verses 36 and 37. Then in Exodus 30, verses 10, 15, and 16. In these passages, there is the sin offering, for example, in Leviticus 4 and other places. And then in one uh, passage, atonement money can be offered to make holy. Uh, 
Here, just concentrating on the main meaning of atonement, kafar, it's a, mean, it's a word that means to cover, if you're taking notes, to purge or to expiate or to cover with pitch. Kafar, to make atonement. The word is used of the Ark of Noah in Genesis 6.14. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms and shall cover it with kafar. Cover it, kafar, inside and out with pitch, which is the Hebrew word kofar. And so it's the idea of covering. Think about Noah's ark. Noah's ark was covered with pitch. Why was the ark created? To save Noah and his family from what? The wrath of God in a flood. The ark became a floating house of salvation. It was a floating cross, if you will. And Noah and his family got into it and God sealed the door and it became the means of salvation. And the ark points to the ultimate saving instrument, if you will, which is Jesus Christ and the cross of Christ. When uh, Moses was born, his mama, in order to hide him from the Pharaoh's edict, put him in a little basket. The little basket was covered with pitch. Now, in the uh, account of the ark and in the basket of Moses, the same Hebrew word for the ark and the basket is teba, T-E-B-A-H. It means a vessel. In the Hebrew picture language, teba or teva is the house of the sign or the house of the cross. Get this. this when you take the Hebrew letters the way Moses would have written it, the ark and the basket are the house of the sign or the house of the cross. Used twice, uh, Noah's ark, Moses' basket, both vessels covered with pitch, kafar, atonement, both become floating means of salvation. One saved Noah and his family from the flood. One saved Moses from the Pharaoh's edict. This is the word for atonement. And Moses is saying, perhaps I can do this. Now, in, I have a Hebrew word picture uh, dictionary here that I sometimes refer to. It's written by Dr. Seekins. And he takes the word and breaks down the letters the way Moses would have written it. And he writes these words. The word for cover, kafar, and pitch, kofar, is the Hebrew word for atonement. The word means to forgive, or in the Hebrew picture language, it literally means to cover the mouth of the man. Here's the picture. Moving away from the objects to like a judge or a person. When a judge or a person could convict you with their words, I saw you doing this and you are guilty, rather than them speaking out the words, they cover their mouth and they don't speak it. That's the word for atonement. It's to cover the mouth of the man to not condemn when you have the right to condemn, like a judge or defendant, to cover the person's sin or wipe it away when you could declare them guilty. It's the covering. See the word cover. That's kafar. The pitch on the ark, 
the pitch on the basket, and now the mouth gets covered. Instead of speaking words of condemnation, it stays silent. This is the idea of atonement. It reflects the pictures of God pardoning when he has every right to condemn. If you, O Lord, kept a record of my sin, O Lord, who could stand Can you imagine if on that day you stood before the God of the universe and he rattled off every sin you've ever committed in thought, word, deed, motivation, what you failed to do when you knew the right thing? It wouldn't take but five minutes for me to be crawling into a hole somewhere. God knows every sin I've ever committed and yet... He has cast it into the sea of forgetfulness. Amen? As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us and in this sense covered them in the the beauty of Christ's sacrifice. Moses becomes a type of Christ. We're going to see that he's not... uh, on that level, but he has the heart of Christ. Moses returned to the Lord, so he reascends now, look at verse 31, up to Yahweh, and said these words, alas, if you have a New King James, oh, NIV, same thing, oh, it's, it's an it's a interjection mingled with a plea. Oh, Lord, he says, this people has committed a great sin, They have made a God of gold for themselves. I almost get the sense that Moses is saying, oh God, I am so sorry. Because I have seen your glory up on this mountain and I can't believe what they did at the foot of Sinai. I can't believe what they constructed, that my brother would do this and and construct a God of gold to somehow compare with you? Oh, God, alas, alas. It's a a word of kind of like a, a sudden thing that strikes the heart of Moses mingled with a plea. Oh, Lord, I am sorry. I find myself praying that way a lot. And it's not just for my own sin as much as I could rattle off a list. Sometimes I'm praying over my country. Sometimes I'm praying over the church. Sometimes I'm praying over the lost. And I I think you can relate, those of you who spend time interceding and praying, it reminds me of David when he said in Psalm 51 verse 4, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Remember in Daniel chapter five when they were praising the gods of silver and gold and taking the holy vessels of the temple and turning them into a mockery. And today, the gods of silver and gold still exist, right? They're in different forms today, but they're not just the gods of silver and gold. They're many different gods with a small g that people worship, elevate above the God of the Bible. And so Moses' words are poignant. Oh, Lord, alas, this people has committed a great sin. He doesn't hide their sin. He doesn't marginalize their sin. 
He just says, this is what's happened. Something that is hard for us to do is to put our hearts with God's heart. I want you to see something very important tonight. Moses has risen above the normal fray. What do I mean? I mean that I think because Moses has been spending time in the glorious presence of God, he's gotten a different perspective on sin. I think he sees it a little bit differently than the way he saw it before. And I think that all of you who have been growing in Christ and you get, you're getting a little bit closer to know his glory and his ways and his holiness, and then you look at things maybe, have you ever gone back and watched a movie that you watched in your BC days? All right, I've done it. Remember a movie, remember some funny parts of a movie, and then turned it back on years later as a Christian and went, oh my, 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 right? <laughs> kind of a, you need to be rebaptized after watching a couple scenes, you know. When we see sin the way God sees it, when we see it from his perspective, what people do, what is so foolish and hurtful, what we do, they had committed spiritual adultery against their God. In the New Living Translation, it says, what a terrible sin. More than that, brethren, do you remember, they had broken a vow that had been sealed with blood. Because when the law was given and when Moses shared it, the people said, everything that you've said, we will do. And then Moses sealed it with the blood, you remember? They broke a blood covenant. They, they basically said, on the blood of this sacrificial animal, we vow to be true to what we've committed to. But it didn't take long. And Moses in verse 32 says, now, reading from the NIV, but now please forgive their sin. One additional way to remember the word atonement is, and this is also in the Hebrew picture language that Dr. Seekins has uh, dug out these letters. One additional way to see the word of atonement, the word for atonement is not only the covering of the ark, and the, with the pitch, it's not only the covering of the mouth and not speaking condemning words. It's to overcome the broken covenant. The way a broken covenant is overcome is through atonement. So let me get practical. There are times when someone has hurt me or you, and my words would certainly be justified to bark out some things uh, about them. Let's just say that I have information from years of spending time with them and I could rattle off things for the last couple decades that they've done wrong. And, and, and you want to know, what, and it's something else. And oh, by the way, do you remember? And we, we could do that. But love, love covers. a multitude of sins. You don't have to speak everything you know because your call is to treat people the same way God treats you and to forgive people the same way that God has forgiven you. And all God's people said, ouch. 
I could speak it, but I'm supposed to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Because with the same mouth, I might be condemning myself. And so Moses says, oh Lord, what's, what's Moses doing? If you're Moses, I might catch a camel to some distant land. <laughs> what am I doing up on this mountain pleading with this God who's a consuming fire? Why do I have this job? But none of that from Moses. He just says, oh, oh God, please forgive your people. You know, Moses is a man of prayer and you can see him praying multiple times where he cries out to the Lord. Just flip back. Let me remind you just of a few places. Look at Exodus 14, verse 15. Exodus 14, 15. Crying out to the Lord several times. He says, the Lord will fight for you. Look at Exodus 14, 15. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the sons of Israel to go forward. Okay, apparently that he had done enough praying. Exodus 15, 25. Take a peek. 15.25. Then he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, and he threw it into the waters, and the waters became sweet. There he made for them a statute and a regulation, and there he tested them. Once again, Moses crying out to the Lord. Look at Exodus 17. Look at uh, verse 4. Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do? Uh, to this people a little more and they will stone me. And then on the top of the hill, just look ahead, uh, Joshua verse 10, Exodus 17, did as Moses told him, fought against Amalek. Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it came about when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. When he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. And there is Moses. You can see the silhouette on the top of the, the hill with his hands lifted up to God, interceding for the people. That's Moses. All that you know about Moses, please don't forget this. He's a man of prayer. And he cried out to God over and over again in tough situations. And he has interceded in Exodus 32, praying, Lord, don't wipe out the people. I don't want the Egyptians to gloat. I don't want your name to be dishonored. Back to Exodus 32. He cares about God's name. And God relented. You remember Exodus 32, verse 14? Some of the versions says God changed his mind. And we wrestled with that a little bit when we taught on that. And, and the Lord did not destroy the people. And Moses has come and he says, look, Lord, I know they have sinned a great sin. Proverbs 28, 13 and 14 puts it this way. He who conceals his transgression will not prosper. Proverbs 28, 13 and 14. But he who confesses and forsakes them, transgressions, will find compassion. How blessed is the man or woman who fears always but he who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. And so Moses, representing the people, says, we've blown it. We've sinned against you, O Lord. 
And he says, and now if you will forgive their sin, look at 32. And if not, please blot me out from thy book, which thou has written. Now the word for sin there is to lift, to carry, or to carry away. Here, this is another, oftentimes when you see words in Hebrew and Greek, Hebrew is the Old Testament, Greek is the New Testament, you'll see words have kind of shades of different meaning. One word, one definition for forgiveness is to carry away. Here's the picture. On the, on the Day of Atonement, they would have two goats, and the high priest would lay his hands on the goat, on one of the goats, and send it away. It was known as the scapegoat. It would literally carry the people's sins away. I've shared with you that some of the rabbis and Jewish teachers say that there was a problem with the scapegoat that often, like your dog or cat, it would turn around and come back and it would ruin the picture. It's supposed to be carrying away all the people's sins. And so they would take the scapegoat. This is what they did to adjust. They would take the scapegoat and when it came to the brow of a hill, they would take it and throw it to its death so it wouldn't return with the people's sins. When Jesus was in his own hometown in Nazareth in Luke 4, he preached a Wonderful message and then kind of a hard message. And the people took Jesus to the brow of a hill and they intended to throw him off and he passed by them. You remember this? Jesus was the scapegoat. Now it wasn't his time to die and he wouldn't die, you know, being thrown from the brow of a hill. He would die in God's time and God's way. But sin... Uh, one definition of, I, I should say, forgiveness of sin, forgiveness of sin, is to carry it away. You don't have to carry it anymore in Christ. I'm going to say that one more time. You don't have to carry your sin anymore in Christ. He carried it away. Amen? So you don't have to carry it. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Amen? Amen. He bore the burden. In Christ, Ephesians 1.7, we have redemption, which means to be purchased and set free by paying a price. Through his blood, the forgiveness, this is the Greek word, ephesus, to send away, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. That's Ephesians 1, 7. Jesus sent our sin away as far as the east is from the west. Amen? The just one died for the unjust to bring us to God. He bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you are healed. That's the gospel. And that is what Moses is asking the Lord to do for the people. Please send their sin away. And if you, if you won't, or perhaps if you can't, then blot me out of your book. Now, I don't know about you, but 
I haven't prayed anything close to that lately. I know that person just cut me off. Forgive them, Lord. But if you won't forgive them, blot me. (laughs) What? Are you kidding me? I mean, that's not even on the radar. (laughs) Let's be honest. I'm not praying any blotting out prayers. Are you? (laughs) I mean, if you are, we we might want to switch places. But should I be? Would you hold your place in Exodus and turn over to Romans chapter 9? Guys, can you check the air for me and see if it's flowing in here? It's a little hot up here. Romans chapter 9. Is this a New Testament concept? The idea of praying that you would be essentially damned for the sake of other people? Check out Romans chapter 9. Paul says these words, verse 1. I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. Romans 9, 2. That I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed. That's the Greek word anathema. Separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Now, Paul has to kind of, you know, bound this in oath language. I'm telling the truth in Christ, not lying. Conscience testifies. Holy Spirit is, is here bearing witness. This is what's going on. I have great sorrow, unceasing grief in my heart. And then he says, it's for my people. He will go on to say it's for the Jewish people. But he says, I could wish, verse three, key verse, myself accursed. That is to be under divine condemnation, separated from Christ. Now, you know Paul's heart's desire was to be with Christ. He said even to die was gain because then I would be with the Lord. Right now, I'm not with him, but I will be with him when I die. But he says, look, I'm telling you the truth. If it could save my people, I would wish myself to be under the curse of Almighty God. In other words, if sending me to hell would save my kinsmen, then so be it. What? That's the guy who was Saul persecuting the church, who's now got a new creation in Christ. And that this is a completely different mindset, but this is the heart of the Messiah. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, 1 John 3, 16, NIV. So we ought to lay down our lives for one another. This is how we know what love is. Do you know what love is? It's when you are willing to lay down your life for somebody else. And in this case, even your eternity. Now, Jesus put it this way. No greater love is there than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends, and Jesus was going to do that, but he had to say that to a group of disciples that were often jockeying for position and fighting with one another. Now, that doesn't happen in the church anymore. That's ancient times. (laughs) That's a joke. (laughs) That's the flesh. Jesus says, 
Do you understand who I am and what I'm about to do for you? You call me master and teacher, and you're right. That's what I am. If I wash your feet, do you see what he's saying? You ought to wash one another's feet. I don't think he was talking about necessarily foot washing ceremonies. He's talking about what he had come to do. And do you know, brethren, that the early church saw martyrdom as an honor? In fact, we're told from Fox's Book of Martyrs and other sources that 11 of the 12 apostles laid down their lives for Christ. Now this is very far removed from the modern form of it's all about you Christianity. And it is frankly very challenging to every core of my fiber of my being. But Moses said it. Paul said it. And there are following the cues of the great Messiah who lays down his life for others, gives his life as a ransom for many. Now, as you turn back to Exodus, I just want to ask you a question. If your target was that kind of love in a broken relationship right now, do you think it might improve? If your target was the love of Christ in your marriage, do you think your marriage would improve? If it stopped being about what the world tells you that life should be about and you started serving and loving, you get what I'm saying, right? The fruit of the Spirit is love. You can speak with the tongues of angels, you can sing with the tongues of angels, but if you don't have love, Paul says you're nothing. Now what does this book represent? This blot me out of your book. There's two major views. I'll give them to you quickly. One view is that it's the book of life, which I think most of you are very familiar with, and which is in both Old and New Testament. And that book of life would represent anybody who has eternal life. So it could be Moses, it could be David, it could be John, it could be a, a, a New Testament Christian or a modern day Christian. Anybody who is in Christ is in the book of life. And that's one major view and that's the way that I would lean. That Moses is actually saying to God, if you would spare the people, if there's no other way, blot me out of your book. There's a second view and it's held by some scholars. And that view is that the book is the book of all the living. And simply, it's a record of names like registries would have in towns and clans and cities. And basically, it's along these lines. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book, they were all written, Psalm 139, verse 16, the days that were ordained for me when there was not yet one of them. There's a book that seems to contain all of our days, but then there's also a book of life. And you know, if you fast forward to Revelation, the books were open, plural. And then there's the book of life. And if your name's not written in the book of life, you all know the scary verse, right? They were cast into the lake of fire. 
Jesus said, don't, re don't rejoice that the demons are subject to you in my name, Luke 10, verse 20. Rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. And then that very unnerving verse in Revelation 3, 5. And I will not erase your name out of the book of life. And he's talking about remaining faithful. And he's talking to the church. I think it's the church uh, Sardis, the dead church. Wake up. <laughs> and people are like, oh, oh no. Does the Lord have an eraser in heaven? <laughs> Rut row. <laughs> when might he use that thing, right? And some people see that as, you know, uh, a legitimate, like, uh, warning to a dead church who's not alive, thus their name's not in the book of life. And then others would say it's more of a promise to the, those who remain faithful. I will not erase their name. And so it unnerves people like, uh, what, is, what does all this mean? And God even says he's going to blot out uh, Amalek from under heaven in Exodus 17. We just looked at that. What is this book? And could Moses be blotted out of it? And would that atone for the people's sin? Well, let's read on and we'll get some answers. The Lord says to Moses, 32, 33, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. But go now, lead the people where I told you, behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I punish, I will punish them for their sin. Then the Lord smote the people because of what they did with the calf which Aaron had made. Now, first of all, the Lord says no to Moses in verse 33. I think Moses is a, certainly casting a shadow of what Jesus would do, but Moses couldn't atone for the people's sins. Why not? If, if you and I are sitting at coffee and I ask you, why not? What would you answer? Because Moses is a sinner. Now, he's a good man and he's a humble man, no doubt, but he has a bit of a temper, <laughs> right? And you, you guys know he, he had his moments and one of those moments kept him out of the promised land. Moses is just like all of us. Yes, a great leader, but still a sinful man. And he could not atone for the people's sins. But he's getting at something very important because he's becoming a picture of Messiah, though he can't fulfill that picture. And he's giving us an idea of the heart that we should have. Psalm 69, 28 puts it this way. May they be blotted out of the book of life and may they not be recorded with the righteous. And here it's dealing with the oppressive enemies of God's people. And so what does this all mean? Some people say, well, God knows who the elect are. So every elect's name was written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. Revelation 13, 8, and it's there and it ain't going anywhere because God already had you in the book. And then other people say, Every name, it starts off in the book of life. This is on the other side. And whoever ends up being in Christ, their name remains. And whoever's not in Christ, their name's removed. <laughs> Look, can I save you some uh, insomnia? If you've trusted Christ, you're in the book of life. And as long as you're not planning to apostatize, which I hope none of you are, 
You're not planning on turning your back on Christ and recanting your faith. You don't have anything to worry about. But what if I blew it this week? No, your sin was carried away. Amen? Amen. Now, there's different views on all of this, and I'm not going to spend time telling you about the two views or more because I think you all know what they are. Eternal security, can you lose it? Could you be in the book? Might you be erased? All of these questions usually arise when people are walking the razor's edge. How much can I get away with and still have my name in that book? Well, you're asking the wrong question. See, this is typically when it comes up. Now, I will tell you, I was in a church parking lot some years ago, and we're winding down just a couple more minutes. And this wide-eyed young believer came up and said, I heard a sermon from Hebrews 6, and I think my name was erased out of the book of life. I was like, whoa, hold on, step back. How do you know it got erased? Did you hear the noise? Were there flakes from the eraser? I mean, what happened? Oh, I blew it this week. And I was like, I blow it every week. What else you want to talk about? Right? So anyway, he, he heard a teaching from Hebrews 6 that, you know, essentially you could lose your salvation and he was all. And I said, the fact that you're even concerned about it leads me to believe that you're fine. Let's talk about your sanctification. Let's talk about growing. Let's not talk about dangling on the edge or living in uncertainty for the rest of your days. That is not what God wants for you. Do you think that's what God wants for you? He loves me. He loves me not. I'm in. I'm out. No. Your sins were carried away. If you're in Christ, then you're in the book. And nothing will ever separate you from his love. And he says, look, whoever sinned against me, him I'll blot out of my book. That is, here's a clear indication that we need a savior. We need a substitute. Otherwise, we'd all be in trouble. Can you imagine we were talking in, uh, earlier on the radio broadcast? You imagine someone walks by the cross and says, hey, if you're the son of God, come down from the cross and we'll believe. You imagine if Jesus said, that's it, it's over, I'm done. <laughs> These people aren't worth it. Fry them all, Father. Blot them all out of the book. But that's not the love of Jesus. He endured the cross, despised the shame. Why? Because he loves you. Amen? Because he loves you. The NIV helps us in verse 34. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. Some scholars believe this has already happened with the 3,000. Some people believe this is a future uh, plague among the people kind of a, maybe a more minor one. Some people see uh, with the language in that day, uh, in verse 34, God says, lead the people. My angel's gonna be with you. I'll be faithful in that day. I'll punish. It could be the Babylonian captivity. It could be the fact that the bulk of this generation did not enter the promised land, except for Joshua and Caleb. Um, and then verse 35 says, the Lord smote the people because of what they did with the calf which Aaron had made. And so this amazing picture, and uh, 
Shane, if you can hear my voice, would you come up? We're going to turn to Hebrews 3 and we're done. Hebrews 3. The uh, writer of Hebrews is commenting on a lot of the Old Testament stuff that we've been studying. And he keeps talking about the superiority of Jesus to angels, Joshua, Moses. And here's what he says, Hebrews 3, 1 through 8. Therefore, holy brethren, Hebrews 3, 1, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses also was in all his house, Hebrews 3, 3. For he had been counted worthy of more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are. If we hold our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as when they provoked me as in the day of trial in the wilderness. Father, thank you for this living word. Thank you for the beauty of Moses' intercession. Thank you for showing us the weight of our sin and yet the solution as the Messiah came to carry our sins away. The greater Moses, the perfect lamb, the fulfillment of the Passover. So much we could say, Lord, but we just want to say thank you for doing for us what we could not do for ourselves, what Moses couldn't do for us. Joshua couldn't do it. No one could do it. The blood of bulls and goats couldn't take away our sin. But Jesus Christ, once for all, for all time, has washed our sin away. Our job is to trust in what he's done for us. Thank you for that, Father. Let us not just trust you for our salvation. Let us go from faith to faith. Let us rest in the finished work of Christ by grace through faith, but let us move on to live out those good works that you've called, you've marked out beforehand that we should walk in them. Thank you for this wonderful church. Bless each one, Lord, strengthen them, cover them, protect them, bless them in Jesus' name.